project hug. Yeah, they want to hug the developers and bring them closer in Google's loving arms wow. and make sure that they don't go build their own. This is like the hug from your grandma who almost suffocates you when you have <laughs> trauma from it. Hi everyone, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. This is the one podcast to stay up to date with all the latest game business news and how they impact the future of games. I really hope that your winter holiday is going to be like mine. You're going to get under a very cozy blanket, get a hot chocolate and listen to the Metacast. <laughs> That's exactly. Don't forget to bring some cats or steal so, your neighbor's cats. Yes. They're cozy. <laughs> I'm allergic to cats. Oh, oh get no. You've heard their voices. Uh, today I'm joined by Matt Dayan, lead product manager at EA and also writer at Navic, David Amor, CEO of Playmint, Marie Majorwall, game advisor within game development and esports. Marie's joining us for the first time today. Hey. Hey, Marie. Hey. Welcome. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for With being here. With these veterans, hopefully carrying me through this episode. Yeah, we can be like a Call of Duty squad. I'll just be dying. And you have to keep reviving me. Oh, that's not good for a host. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you're the anchor. Come on. <laughs> so I always like to ask a really random question to new guests. And I've been asking about wow. um, pets that you like to pet in game. But I thought oh, today to yeah. enter the Christmas spirit because I started wrapping gifts this week and I realized how much I suck at it. What? And so I was wondering, Marie, what's your mm-hmm. favorite present wrapping technique? Do you use paper? Do you use bags or do you just like wrap it in fabric? It depends. If it's like something super exclusive and small, then I'll just like put it in a box and then I'll have some some of this like semi-transparent just colored paper around it that you just kind of fold it around. Oh, wow. Um, if something bigger, then I like to take some silvery wrapping paper and I like to do a lot of like diagonals and stuff funky business and get everything all my angles perfectly online and then be very creative like the whatever sort of tire or or, um whatever decoration you put on it needs to be unique they all need to be unique they all need to stand out and then i i usually do some calligraphy uh notes on it as well and maybe maybe a little poem or something (laughs) can we all agree this is unusual quality (laughs) wrapping right I'm feeling very self-conscious. It's a thought that can't, but how nice isn't it to get like a really good Christmas present? Someone really put their time. What I feel today is people are giving up material things, but it's the thought that counts. It's like the love you put in it is how much you thought about, you know, this thing, you know, really fitting you and having a thought behind it. So, you know, I think those things are as valuable as the gift itself. I'm I'm feeling very ashamed about my present wrapping at home now. Marie seems like a good person. This, you know, what are we? Two minutes in, she yeah. seems like a good person. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> I mean, I Maria, like you've at least happy. Maria, you've at least started wrapping your your gifts. I haven't even started shopping yet. So I know. Well, uh, you're you know, Matt, it is the, I, as we record this, twenty third of November. So mm-hmm. you're you're the weird ones. Maria's the weird one. <laughs> to be fair, like I live so far from my family now, so it's probably only k- kind of few presents that I don't just send straight from Amazon, and those I do have the time to wrap. So you know, there's also that. I, I'd, I'd be more comfortable if we move on from this conversation, please. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not feeling good. good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've it's been okay. talking. Getting to the stuff. <laughs> 
Uh, so the, the main topics we're going to be discussing today is Blizzard not renewing the contract with NetEase um, for being their agent in mainland China and everything that means about it, the rumors of what Blizzard will do next with that market, and also how Google struck deals to prevent big app developers from competing in the Play Store. Yeah, really, really curious to dive into that one. It, I got both, into... both topics are pretty gossipy, aren't they? I know, I don't, Maria, I don't think you're very comfortable in the world of gossip, but I think we should lean into it. That's where the no, fun is, isn't it's, it? It's a couple, I, I must say, there's a couple things on today's episode where I have to kind of be careful with my words. I'm under <laughs> NDA with a couple of these Ooh. companies, you know? Let's, so I gotta uh, be like, wait, let me just Google if this is public information yet or uh, not. Let's, you know? let's get Marie <laughs> drunk and see if she will spill some. <laughs> we should have Amazon uh, with a really nice gift gift wrap. Um, there you some, go. Some wine. Bribe always works, right? <laughs> Google. Exactly. Um, but as as we've been doing nowadays, we're just going to go through some some key updates before jumping into the discussions. And there seems to be a pattern where I take the first update. I'll have to change this around. Uh, anyway, uh, it's Game Loft's successful expansion into PC and console. So in the third quarter of 2022, Game Loft's revenue was up by 48% compared to the same period in 2021. And Game Loft, as you know, is a respectable, respectable mobile game developer with hit titles such as Asphalt. So you may be asking, how did they grow their revenue by 48% and what can I do to, to match that well. So they released Disney Dreamlight Valley, which is their first major title to debut on PC and all major console platforms. And they pivoted their strategy to become a cross-platform studio around January 2019, because at the time, they st their statement said that they saw that the high-end market on mobile was not as dynamic and as profitable as it had been. And they were considering potentially moving into hyper-casual, but decided to lean into the high-quality premium games that they're used to developing. And honestly, it's just proving as a really good bet for the studio. Um, being able to show this trend of growth in a market that's been showing decline in earnings uh, struggling across the board. I just thought, I think there's a lot of interesting takeaways if you, if you want to dig into it further. Yeah, well... I can provide a small comment on that one. Like, I think there's been, like, the, the big, you know, like, free-to-play wave has is, is still, like, here, right? But there's enough people who are tired of it who also want a couple of these premium, high-quality games. And I think that's where Gameloft can come in because they have so much experience with, with doing that so they can actually provide that. Hmm. Yeah. Honestly, looking at Google bringing privacy changes in the in the midterm future, I think in a couple of years, there's still a continuation of I, iOS post IDFA challenges. Mobile phones technically are becoming powerful and could even be compared to Switch. So there's a gap that's bridging between the talent that develops mobile games with the talent that develops console games. And also seeing that accessing cross-platform game dev tech is just becoming more accessible. I honestly believe that we'll see more studios, we'll see more mobile-first studios going into a cross-platform portfolio to mitigate these risks. Mm. Just real quick, has anyone actually so well. played um, the the game here, the Disney Dreamlight Valley? I thought it looked really, really clever. I didn't play it, but I watched a lot of videos. I went into a rabbit hole of YouTube. What do you think? It looks amazing. Yeah. Do you, as somebody that makes driving games, did you have driving game envy? 
Uh, it's not. This is a life sim game where oh. you're living amongst the Disney and Pixar friends. I was, I was still picturing um, Asphalt Nine for some reason. But they are they are doing a console Disney racing game that looks uh-huh. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always I always really look up to what what Game Loft does in terms of racing. They have their own engine mm. as well that gives them a competitive advantage, and I'm really curious to see it in practice on console and PC. I think we'll see more of it. You know, I know that PlayStation also is starting to invest in mobile studio, mobile first studios. So I think we'll see a little bit more, a little bit of renaissance coming on in the next couple of years of premium games and mobile. Yeah, and actually that ties really nicely into Matt's update about generative AI and how that could potentially lead more of the studios to be able to pursue the high quality of these, I don't know, double A games. Is that how you describe them? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think the, the takeaway here that we'll come to, which you're sort of alluding to is sort of an upcoming democratization of game development, which I think is really interesting. But anyways, the, the update here is that Andreessen Horowitz, um, games fund put out a piece, uh, called generative. I think this is the title generative AI is the biggest thing to happen to the game industry since 3d. Sorry. That's a quote from the piece, not the actual title. Uh, this was written by, James Gortzman, who's a general partner at the Games Fund, and Jack Soslow, who also does investing at the Games Fund. Um, and they are reviewing a lot of the recent developments in generative AI um, and making some predictions about where this is going to go. So uh, they walk through a few key assumptions that sort of underlie their thinking here. Um, they're saying the amount of research being done in uh, AI is continuing to grow. Uh, of all entertainment, games are going to be most impacted uh, by generative AI. They're predicting the, the price of content will continue to drop dramatically and basically going effectively to zero in some cases. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it, it's still early. And a lot of this is still being worked out, but one of their key takeaways is that the the developers that are jumping into this space early and learning how to work with these tools are going to be the ones that are successful moving forward because this is sort of going to change the entire development pipeline. Um, so they make a number of predictions. I'm not going to um, go into all of them in depth here. I would definitely encourage everyone to read the piece. I thought it was, it was really good, and I personally find this topic to be fascinating. Um, but a couple of predictions just off the top that I thought were interesting and uh, connect to the first uh, point here is that they predict we're going to see an increase in the number of games released each year uh, and the emergence of AI-assisted micro-studios, uh, maybe some new game types that were not previously possible without generative AI, uh, and of course some forthcoming legal challenges as to use of IP and whatnot, uh, among others. Um, but uh, the sort of TLDR is like, if you're a game developer, you should be looking into generative AI now, uh, as it's still quite early. And this is going to be a marketable skill and a real differentiator for studios. I think like, if you're a hyper casual studio, you need to be looking into this like yesterday. Um, this is so um, potentially transformative, I think, to game development. It, it's just massive. So uh, have, have you all been following any of the developments in generative AI and, and what, what's going on there? Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see these things every day. You know, and some people post uh, amazing things. Shout out to Eric Pefoy, uh, 
um, UI presentation, veteran in the games industry, always does cool stuff. But then you have all the ones making what looks like someone posted a Belle Delphine, you know, a, a lot of a lot of a lot of big boobs, a lot of girls, and some of them are actually some some serious stuff, you know. And my take on it, also watching after watching Deviant Art and another different um, art 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 pages trying to implement this that that the legal hurdles are so big you know at the end of it this is an algorithm it's going to take the stuff that being fed the art is being fed into it and it's going to try to make something generate something new with it, and you will always have these legal issues so at the end of it for any game studio to be to be safe i don't see them using these as their final asset i see them using maybe as placeholders maybe it will help during the process when you're trying to find a reference image, you know, maybe, for example, designers like myself could actually use this to try to express what I'm looking for to an artist. So it can, it can alleviate some of the stuff, but I think for, 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 for the foreseeable future, this, this will only lead to placeholders. Uh, I'm going to disagree. Um, I, I was at, I was at Slush last week and that was, AI was a hot topic and, uh, I, I saw some demos of it being used in games already and they were using a sample set that the artists had created an in-house artist. So it was creating mm. more art in the same style and they weren't copyright. Uh, it's sort of interesting pushback on, uh, from the people building the games because of, of course, the idea that of, uh, and AI being able to create a lot of content for the game is not a particularly comfortable one to consider. And there's a bit of sort of getting around that. Conversely, you know, I think the people that are building businesses are saying, whoa, this is great. This is, and the investors are also saying, this is awesome. So they're sort of like, depending on who you are. And some people are sort of caught up in the ethics, but I understand as well. But, uh, agree with you, Matt. I think it's, uh, it's going to be enormous. We haven't seen this. We haven't seen a tiny part of it yet. It's got loads, yeah. loads more to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think reading through, I think this article is excellent. Also, shout out Matt, like you did, if you haven't read it, really recommend it, and I'll put mm, it in the good. show notes. And just reading through it, I got all of the all of these ideas just going through the pipeline of the game that I work on, just thinking, ooh, if we had this, we could do that, and if we had that, we could do this. And not just time savings, but also being able to level up the holistic quality with a smaller team when we're mm. trying to compete with um, teams that have hundreds of people in it. Yep. Yeah, I, I think you all make some good points. And, um, you know, my takeaway after reading some of the, the predictions is like, you know, at least one one major outcome of this is, is that it's going to increase the speed at which um, especially small developers are able to put out uh, new games, put out new content. Um, and as they say, it will increase the number of games released each year. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that? I think that puts the emphasis on discoverability and marketing, which, by the way, could also be impacted by AI, AI in different ways. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to Marie's point, there's also going to be an emphasis on the inputs, the training data. Uh, so yeah. what is feeding into these models that leads to these new outputs? Um, so rather than just scraping the entire internet, we're using a more specialized set of training data to lead to whatever it is that we're trying to do, whether mm. it's concept art or it's 3D models or textures or what have you. Yeah, definitely. I used to work in machine learning and I I think the next step to remove the ethic, ethical and potential legal issues will be to use internal data sets like I think you yeah. all mentioned. Yeah. I, I just one yeah, I can work. I can definitely see that working. Just one comment I I thought maybe I, I wanted to bring it up. So I believe one part of the article says that if you're a game studio not utilizing them or exploring them today that you're already behind. 
I believe there was a pretty big statement in this article. And I was wondering, Matt, what's your take? Is that realistic? Do you think game studios, if they want to become relevant, they have to start exploring this yesterday? Um, I think there's probably a little bit of nuance there. Like there are many game studios that are already relevant that are not using it. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, from their perspective, from A16Z's perspective, right, they're backing, you know, new studios, startups that need to get to scale quickly. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but, um, you know, to that point, it would be foolish to ignore it if you're a mega publisher or a successful studio already, like these changes are coming, whether you want to accept them or not. So I think it makes sense to at least explore it and see what the possibilities are for your own studio and then decide for yourself. If it's not for you, if you want to be, you know, take a more bespoke approach and do everything in-house, like that's totally acceptable. It's worked for many years. Um, but, uh, I think it would be foolish to dismiss it outright without at least investigating it. And also, if you've already built an art department and that's the way your studio is geared, but but you're looking to take a different approach, then you can't just flick a switch and start creating content yeah. for your game in a different way. Um, so maybe it's more relevant for startups than it is for uh, existing studios. I think it's a new set of tools in the tool belt, right? I, I actually mm. don't think that that many people are going to be replaced by these tools. I think it's yeah. just going to be, uh, yeah. you know, a new set of techniques for creating art or creating content, whatever right. it may be. Right. It's not only art. Um, yeah, I and, completely agree. Yeah. The industry is growing, you know, where I think we add another billion people in only like 11 years or something like super crazy like that. And so is entertainment and so is games. So, you know, we'll still need all the artists for creation and, you know, polishing, if, if nothing else. So I don't I, I agree. I don't think a lot of people are going to lose their jobs over this. And then going into the next update, if we're talking about companies with large data sets to take advantage of being able to create these models. I just want to very quickly run through Embracer Group's earnings. So this was uh, an analysis in Navic Digest, which is Navic's free newsletter. It was in collaboration with Invest Game. So their Q2 analysis, um, main takeaway is that revenue grew 190% year over year. However, um, Embracer generated only 35% of organic growth, meaning that the remaining growth mostly comes from revenue that's connected to M&A. So nothing surprising based on previous analysis that we've done of Embracer. Um, this is why we're not going to cast judgment yet on their strategy. And they have an exciting pipeline in terms of transmedia opportunities with their acquisitions of Asmodee and Dark Horse IPs. They also recently, well, recently acquired um, Extremely important IPs such as The Lord of the Rings, Tomb Raider, Deer's X, although unfortunately they are going to sunset the games that, um, was it Square Enix? Yeah, yeah Square, Mo they, they shut down Square Enix Montreal, yeah. the mobile studio. They yeah. still have the sister studio, Idos, where I've worked actually, is still intact. And I, I got I got a couple of stories from there. If we, if we get time at the end <laughs> of the show, we'll see. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, the transformation from a pure PC and console gaming company to multi-pronged entertainment business, where now the tabletop segment is actually 34% of sales, that could help mitigate and have new strategies of, of growth over the years through their acquisition strategy. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that. All right. And then we'll have the last update with you, Matt. Yeah, so this one is Sony uh, files a patent for tracking in-game digital assets with NFTs. So uh, back in July of this year, Sony had revealed a new loyalty program that they were calling PlayStation Stars, and it allows players to earn points and digital collectibles by completing quote unquote campaigns. 
now these were referred to as digital rewards and they were explicitly stated as definitely not NFTs. This is what they okay. said at the time. Uh, they could not be resold, which was, this is why they're saying they're not NFTs. Um, however, these seem like very similar topics. So, you know, putting on my tinfoil hat here, like perhaps these are related uh, initiatives. Um, I think my general take here is let's just wait and see. I think, um, you know, as I said, it's not new news. It's just newly revealed to the public. I think every major game developer, game publisher is looking at Web3 and perhaps making some moves, perhaps just exploring. So, you know, I want to wait and see. The patent hasn't been approved yet, to be clear, and it may not be approved. It does seem very broad if you read through it a little bit. Um, and even if it is approved, you know, how decentralized would it really be? Um, I would assume it'd be somewhat similar to what uh, Ubisoft did with their Quartz uh, initiative. It's it's going to be still within Sony's ecosystem if they do it. They're not going to, I'm, I'm assuming, they're not going to open their digital collectibles up to Xbox or Nintendo or what have you. So uh, maybe I'm being overly skeptical, but my take is wait and see. What's Matt, what's the difference between what you just described there and trophies? Are they Is it more on the sort of collectible sides or? I don't know that there's a huge difference. They mentioned, um, uh, where was it? It was uh, gameplay clips, characters, or in-game items. So it's not just like a little trophy uh, you put on your shelf, but it could be, uh, you know, a clip that you took while you were playing God of War or, you know, you're collecting some in-game items. I don't know. It's, you know, it's obviously light on details, but this is my Yeah, okay. Hmm. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of people um, being... We're trademarking things that are sort of already going on already. Mm. We've seen that in the games industry a few times where something that's already basically in the public domain, somebody then somehow manages to get a trademark on it and everybody has to react to it. It feels a bit like that. As you say, I guess it's happened a while ago, but uh stinks a bit, I think. <laughs> I, I think you're 100% right, David. This is, this is something that really big companies do. Um, because they have the resources to file patents and you know go through all the legal proceedings and and defend those patents if they're granted, right? So this is not something that some Web three startup can just you know spin up and file a patent for it. You know, I remember I was making games for Sony at one point, and I was encouraged to to make trademarks. I think we even got a mm. studio bonus for if wow. we're doing something cool and new. Then let, let's wrap this up in a trademark and then protect it. Didn't like that. Mm. I worked for IBM for a while and they, their whole business was basically patents. You know, I was in this Amadan research lab with, with, you know, people who had 30 patents to their name each or worked there for, you know, like 35 plus years or something like that. So some do that, but uh, the, the crutch here, like, like some one of you mentioned is like, once you have them, you have to defend them. And that's going to cost you a lot of money as well. That's something you need to keep doing because as soon as you mm -hmm. stop, and then everyone can say, "Well, you didn't. You let these guys do it, so why can't we do it?" Mm -hmm. You know. Interesting. And the question is, if it will actually be approved or not, because this is an area that's moving very quickly. Yeah, I, I don't think it will be approved for Even all, is, all of the mentioned reasons. Yeah, it's it's quite a slow process. It takes you know multiple years to get these things approved, uh, and they only filed it last year. Hmm. I actually don't know how it could be enforced if the blockchain is decentralized. Yeah, none of this. What, what do you yeah. do bringing this story, Matt? This is a complete non-story. Next, next story, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> big, big nothing burger. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> it's okay. Well, this is great. This is honest feedback. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, then we'll go into the first discussion topic, which is was it not renewing NetEase? Um, yeah, I'm not one for gossip, so I will stay away from gossip. But if you want to go into gossip, David, you're you know you're the guests. You're welcome. I, I, to. I don't have a lot, but I can speculate. Uh, <laughs> but when you why don't we start with the facts and then we'll speculate and dig into gossip? <laughs> okay, I, I did notice yesterday when I was doing the prep. I have three bullet points of facts, and then all the rest is gossip. So Perfect. there's Love yeah it. <laughs> something going <laughs> Let's on. Do it. <laughs> okay, so I think just starting from the conclusion, Blizzard Games will return to China. It will be with a new partner. It could be with the former partner. We'll see. So we're going to digging into with whom and when. So setting the scene of what happened, um, the publishing license in mainland China will not be renewed in the agreement between Blizzard and NetEase in January next year. This means that uh, games like World of Warcraft, Overwatch, Hearthstone, Diablo 3, Warcraft 3, and others will uh, no longer be accessible. They're essentially shutting down in the country. I believe because you associate your Blizzard account to um, account systems in China, such as WeChat, I believe, you will have your progress saved. So hopefully, if they do bring it back, you're not going to lose your progress. And before going into the rumors, so Blizzard's public statement was that the contract was not consistent with Blizzard's operating principles and commitments to players and employees. Doesn't say much. And then NetEase publicly stated that it was because there were material differences on key terms and we could not reach an agreement. There was a mysterious tweet, though, to kick off all of these rumors, where NetEase's head of partnerships appeared to call Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick a jerk. Although, you know, all stories have two sides. Who does it? Is so, that news? <laughs> I'm not going to pass judgment. Is <laughs> anyone who does it this? <laughs> so let's start let's start with the rumors um not well not really rumors yet so yeah what are the consequences for blizzard and nays because both companies really played down the impact that this was going to have onto their performance um activision blizzard's stock value may remain stable whilst nays took a bit of a dive what do you think so I think that like Blizzard is fine, you know, they'll find someone else to release this with and they still have so strong IPs and so semi-unique games and, in, in, you know, in some some regards, I think that they'll be fine. Netties, they have so much other stuff going on, so many other games that I think in the long term, they will be fine as well. But, you know, looking at the kind of share value uh, moving, it, it does seem they took a little bit of a bigger hit. And that does make sense. Can I uh, point a clarity, Maria? Mm. What's, hap what's happened there? That they had an agreement and then it needed to be renewed? Because from the language yeah. you use there, it says, uh, yeah, they're not happy with the contract. But presumably there was a contract before that. And so what, you know, even though that they, the, the arrangement was commercially okay, the, the, the new agreement didn't work for both sides. Is that what you read into that? Yes, it, it, the contract had an expiry date and then they had right. to negotiate the renewal and my understanding is that the terms that were trying to be negotiated for the renewal, there was no agreement. And so they decided to not renew it, which means that when the expiration date hits, uh, you, the game's would, no longer. You would think that Blizzard had the leverage there because, uh, as Marie says, right, they'll, they'll find someone else. So it was interesting that they were 
being pushed against. I found some rumors. That's what happened. They probably were trying to use that, right, to get a better deal for the extension. I found Uh some rumors. Yeah, I found a rumor of what they were trying to negotiate. Again, rumors, but we'll we'll get into it. I can see why NetEase did not accept it. We'll see. Any any other thoughts on the consequences before we move on? I just want the gossip. I want the rumors. Yeah, I want to hear this. Um, um, well, well, one thing that that I I would say though is like, if Blizzard would partner with someone else, then what would that be? Because NetEase has a big presence in in all of Asia, especially in China. And the question is like, they have the marketing potential that not everyone else does. So they're able to really like Blizzard has the IP, you know, and they're, and they're famous and they're good games. But you still need to reach in terms of, you know, reaching reaching the clients. And that's that's what I think that NetEase could bring. So who else could bring enough of that for Blizzard, so to say, for, for it to be worth it for them to make the move? Yeah, I think the obvious choice would be Tencent because Microsoft um, and Activision already have relationships with previous projects and existing projects. However, there are other um, contenders in play. Uh, what's the name? For example, the company that used to be the partner in mainland China before NetEase. I have to go and look up what, what the name is. I'll look it up while you keep going. <laughs> and then, but Tencent, they have their own games too, you know, too. You know, are they going to... Yeah, I think so, definitely, because it's part of Tencent's... It's just part of Tencent's business. They do that for many, many games. And yeah, with these strong partnerships. Yeah, Tencent in the past. Yeah. Right. And they like, also they, have... Yeah. Oh, sorry? No, no, you're okay. I, I was going to say, like, you know, they have a relationship with... Activision to do Call of Duty, but Tencent also does PUBG Mobile mm-hmm. uh, and several other shooters. Like they, I don't think they're worried about cannibalizing their own revenues too much. No, and they also have co-dev opportunities and third-party dev opportunities. With um, I believe they have five uh, studios for development, but one of them is Timmy, that did Honor of Kings. They also did Call of Duty Mobile. So uh, some potential consequences that were discussed was whether this would limit opportunities of co-dev for um, Blizzard because they did codev with NetEase for Diablo mm-hmm. Immortal. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I didn't mention Diablo Immortal is safe because it has its own contract. So it's not going to shut down in mainland China. Um, so there's also that potential relationship. Uh, the other player that they could sign an agreement with is could be Newverse from ByteDance. Okay. At yeah. least when we get into what they're asking for, I think you have to find a partner that has deep pockets and wants to take the the name, I get get the marketing, get the reputation of having such agreements. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get but, into it. But ByteDance doesn't have any publishing capability, does it, in China? They do with, new, with Newverse, yeah. Oh, I see, okay. They did um, Marvel Snap. They published Marvel Snap. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they okay. Yeah, so they're trying to get that reputation and market standing. So having an agreement with with Blizzard could take them that way. But yes, yeah. they don't have the the history or the operational capacity um, when comparing to NetEase and Tencent, at least nowadays. Yep, yep. What what were the terms? What were the terms? Okay, uh, let me <laughs> let me spill the beans. Let me find them. So, <laughs> again, these are rumors. The terms were that Blizzard was trying to um, have the share race ratio increased compared with more than 50% of revenue and net profit during the contract period from 2019 to 2022. They're also um, 
They wanted NetEase to develop other IP mobile games for Blizzard's global distribution, but only have the revenue share for the Chinese market. And NetEase would have to pay a deposit. Additionally, um, because there's a game approval problem in China, uh, I think Blizzard was trying to put forward some clauses that just could not be guaranteed based on the mm -hmm. regulatory environment in China. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that would put um, NetEase in quite a disadvantaged position. And additionally, NetEase would have to pay two years of corporation money in advance, which would be millions. Wow. And considering... Uh, considering that there was a huge slowdown in terms of licenses being granted by the regulatory bodies in uh, China for the distribution of games there, that's a, that's a huge gamble because you might pay those two years up front without really knowing when your license will be, get, will be granted. Yeah. So you'll just be out of pocket without you, you having control over it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but on the positive side, we have seen quite recently... Tencent finally had their first game license approved. I believe it was um, a week or so ago called Metal Slug Awakening. And we've also seen NetEase also get a couple game licenses approved. So at least that risk, it's not fully mitigated. At least there's some signs that the mm. environment is improving. What do you think of those conditions? It's hard to know. I mean, you have, well, I agree that that sounds like puts a lot of uh, risk on NetEasy's side if they're paying for things up front but not sure whether or not they can start seeing revenue streams from it. So I, it's hard to – it sort of depends what the rev share is, right? So um, as to whether or not some of those other things are fair, it, it, it's hard to work out without knowing the numbers, I think. I, I think Blizzard certainly has the leverage in this negotiation. You know, they have the IPs here. And I think, you know, if they were dissatisfied with the agreement to begin with, perhaps, obviously these are rumors, but perhaps they put forth terms that they knew would be rejected uh, so that they could go out and, you know, court other publishers. Right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like something they wouldn't have done unless they had a good alternative in place, right? Because right? Right. otherwise they're gambling as well because every month that their games are not live in this region, they're losing a lot of money. There are two rumors about that. I really went into the rabbit hole of rumors on this one. So one of the rumors is that actually Tencent has been in conversations with Blizzard for a year. So they could have been preparing for this. The second rumor is that um, Blizzard could do an agreement with NetEase again because it seems like Bobby Kotick maybe was an instigator here that was potentially not all of Blizzard being aligned on what was being pursued. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's a rumor that if the the acquisition with Microsoft goes through and they assign a new CEO, that then we could actually see Blizzard go back and do uh, an agreement with NetEase again because that will really mitigate the risk in terms of the approval because the approval is with the agent company and not with Blizzard. So if they go with any company that's not NetEase, they'll be at risk of the regulatory environment of getting that license approved. Mm -hmm. But if they're with NetEase, they could just turn it back on if they wanted to. It might be the bad cop, good cop. You know, they're sending Bobby, <laughs> see how, how good, how far he can get. And then they come like, okay, we'll meet you halfway. And then that's still more than what they would have gotten otherwise hadn't they done that that maneuver, so to say. When do you, uh, when was the last NetEase mobile game? Was that Diablo 3? Was that the last one they did? Oh, no, Call, Call of Duty? They did yeah. a Diablo Immortal game. Oh, that's the one I meant, sorry. When was that? That wasn't that long ago, was it? 
No, I don't think it was that long that I was granted to to be. I'm just wondering whether or not they waited for everything to be wrapped up on some big games like that before going to a negotiation. Essentially, Diablo Mortar is protected in a different contract, so it wouldn't right, okay. have been affected. Right, yeah, right. but it would be the future games. Uh, just some of the things I uh, I thought would be interesting to dig into just before moving on is whether it will actually become easier to publish a game in the People's Republic of China. I know that it's it's an attractive market. Um, there's a lot of potential, especially with certain game genres. Although the environment of actually getting published, uh, you know, you need a local partner or you need a um, sorry, you need a local partner and then you need a license. And there's just a lot of difficulties that as an overhead, especially if you're a smaller studio. But it seems, I think the the state media did a recent acknowledgement of the value of the opportunity of games and that they want to really help push forward uh, realizing that opportunity. And also we've seen countries of all countries uh, we've seen the european union pass um it's not it's not a law it's a resolution so it's not binding where they're calling on the member states to try to support the growth of the game industry and as soon as that resolution passed a few days later we saw that germany is increasing their national budget for games funding we saw that um, ireland is implementing a tax credit of 32 percent where you can claim back 32% of development costs. And so we know that China is also has ambitions to lead the global development of technology. They want to be the leaders of AI by 2030. And so I think seeing how um, other countries are really investing into the industry, that might soften their position because there was a bit of crackdown, uh, I think, I believe a few years ago. There was a crackdown before and then it got better and then there was a crackdown again due to the addiction, but they also recently made an announcement that they've managed to resolve young people's addiction to games through their regulations. So overall, it it could, yeah, just keep, it could be important for companies to keep an eye on on what's happening in the market because maybe that softening could mean the opportunity is there to to try to enter it. It's very hard for Western companies to really understand what goes on in Eastern countries. I I found that in the past working at EA, trying to make headway into Japan. And it's just very, very hard to do without pairing with a a company, partnering with a company that really understands the domestic market. And like, I, I, I can't culturally and commercially and the way the government works, I have, wouldn't, have no idea how to navigate that. So, and it's not just in games. That's right. So my experience working for both Square Enix when I worked at IDOS and later Capcom Vancouver is that there's just different cultures going on, you know, and understanding each other takes quite a while, it takes a couple of years. And the best thing you can do is probably just to purchase or partner with someone who seems obviously successful in their market and just let them be. And that's kind of what the only thing I've seen working right. long-term yeah. really. And even that doesn't work forever. So I think there, there'll always be those cultural differences to try to try to understand. And for Western companies, we'll always, there'll be some suspicion. Japan, I feel like it's, it's, it's a little bit of a better story. Like cause there's a tradition within games, especially, you know, coined by Square and Nintendo to have these partnership with, with China. It's still up there. And with having this being such a liability, not knowing what they're going to go next, you know, when they crack down, you know, it's hard to talk about this without, without getting political, you know, it was the Hong Kong, it was COVID, it was, you know, like limiting how much uh, 
you can play. Like, I think this is a pattern that is reoccurring and I think it will continue to happen. I think that will continue being a risk. Yeah, it's about measuring the risk versus the opportunity of of entering a completely new market. And when I used to work in uh, fisheries doing export-import globally, we always needed to have local partners for sales in different countries because we don't understand we don't understand how sales happen we don't understand interpersonal relationships or how do you position how you position a product in Iceland or the United States is different to how you're going to position your product in China in South Korea in Japan um, mm-hmm. and yeah I think we see that in games as well you need someone who understands the market to guide how to position your product there All right, we'll move into um, the next discussion topic, which is about Google's deals. Yeah, Mm. so the headline here is that Google struck a number of deals to prevent competition with their Play Store. Um, And the thing I'd like you all to keep in mind as I'm sort of going through this, just think about like, do you think that this is anti-competitive or do you think that it's just good strategy on Google's part? So. Um, the, the, the headline here, Google has struck at least 24 deals with various big app developers to stop them from competing with the Play Store. Uh, so this came out from, uh, again, lawsuit that Epic Games filed against Google 2020, uh, alleging anti-competitive practices related to Android and the Play Store. Um, and Google had entered into agreements with companies like Activision Blizzard, uh, 360 million over three years, Riot Games in 2020, 30 million for one year, uh, to basically not go develop their own app stores. Uh, Google was worried. This apparently came from an internal, I don't know if it was a presentation or memo from their finance team stating the potential downside if this sort of movement to break away from the app stores caught momentum. Um, and they were seeing, you know, potential massive financial implications on Google. And so they started cutting these deals. So Activision has denied the claims. Riot said they're still reviewing the filing. Other companies that were supposedly um, uh, caught into this web were uh, Nintendo, Ubisoft, Calm, which is a meditation app, and Age of Learning, which I think is educational games. Uh, So some interesting names there. Um, The remuneration included payments, uh, I, I don't know if this was for all of them, but certainly for Activision uh, specifically, they talked about payments for posting to YouTube, credits towards Google ads and cloud services. Um, they were sort of cutting different deals to make it more appealing for these publishers to not go do their own thing. This was all a part of what was called Project Hug. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought it was a fun name. Uh, <laughs> Project Hug. Yeah, they wanted to hug the developers and bring them closer <laughs> in Google's loving arms wow. and make sure that they don't go build their own apps. This is like the hug from your grandma who almost suffocates you when you have <laughs> trauma from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the question is, is I'm trying to <laughs> try to keep the analogy going here. Is your grandmother's hug anti-competitive to other grandmothers <laughs> or is it just out of love and concern? <laughs> um, it's your grandma just right, you know, so they're competing. So, you know, they got to make sure you remember them. I'm not just kidding. Um, I have, I have a take on this. I think this is a bribe. 
like straight up Ooh. bribe, obviously. And I think it is anti-competitive in, on the one hand. But on the other hand, the op- I mean, this, this is a deal. There's two sides of the deal. They could also just say no and move ahead and make their own store if they wanted to, if they wanted to take the risk. But obviously all these companies who are just taking the money and they're like, well, it's not worth the risk going off, making my own store, you know, and trying to fight this, this dragon. So I'll just take the money and, and be happy with it. I think yeah. that's a really interesting take um, because, you know, Google has the perspective, you know, 30,000 feet, they can see all the companies that could potentially take this path or join forces and team up against the app store. But if you're just, um, you know, calm or you're just Nintendo, you're not necessarily having these conversations with other companies that might not be like directly competitive doing the, these app stores. So it's like much riskier for the people that they're, it's, it's, it's easier, as you say, Marie, to cut the deal and take the money mm. than it is to, you know, go out and take a risk to build your own app store and compete against Google, this behemoth. Now, you can't, and I'm just trying to think how this would work. So you can't, you're not allowed to build a store or, uh, that you can download from the app. So you can't, can't have a store within the store. Um, so is this, obviously, uh, Fortnite was sideloaded. So that's, I think, what, what they were reacting to first. Is there also an issue that... Uh, Samsung and Huawei at least used to have um, their own stores and they got some sort of, you know, what is that sort of baked into their phone when you buy it? It, it has. Uh, That's right. It, and, so what do you think? Is it um, to prevent both of those? And, and maybe if you're saying, hey, don't, don't build a store for three years. If legislation went against Google and it was decided that, actually people can have a store on, on the phone, then it sort of prevents them from doing it, even though it become easy and wouldn't, uh, or much easier. So, you know, would, do you think they're trying to protect against all three of those or is there one in particular? Uh, that well, certainly Samsung should- was mentioned um, in the research that I was doing. I think Fortnite had cut a deal with Samsung uh, at the time to have right. Fortnite on the Samsung's store or something like that. Uh, And so they were concerned, Google was concerned that other developers might follow suit. Um, I don't know if they were concerned about Samsung specifically uh, or, you know, some of these, some of these um, companies that cut deals could feasibly compete. I think Nintendo, Activision, Blizzard, like these companies have major IP. They have a lot of games. They could potentially compete. Um, But if you talk Mm -hmm. about some of these smaller players, you know, then maybe we're Google is concerned about Samsung. They're concerned about Huawei or what, what I suppose, have you. And I worked a little bit on stores at one point, and uh, there's a critical mass point as well because if the top 20 grossing or most downloaded games all of a sudden were available in another app store, I think you don't go go to another app store just for one game but if all of the major ones are there and they give you some sort of incentive as a player where they say do you know what starting will give you a three dollar pack for free or 30 percent off or whatever they can afford for not giving that to google then it might be enough of a critical mess to have players start to get in the habit of opening a different store other than the google play store well, well if we're talking about activision blizzard with candy crush mm-hmm. that that's a massive market to 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 move into the app store and with Android, it is a little bit different from Apple where you can download APKs and install them. You can, I think even on Apple, you can almost sideload apps and it creates a web app. So it kind of looks like an app, but you download it in a different way. So I, it'd be, 
I, was, I thought it was interesting that Fortnite ultimately ended up back on the Google Play Store. So that, that sideloading experiment, I remember trying that to see what that was like. And there was a lot of friction, as yeah, you imagine. I tried it as um, well at the time. Yeah. And, um, and ultimately they, Epic decided they weren't forced to. They just decided we're losing too many installs by not being on the Google Play Store. So that sideloading just isn't, there's just too much friction there. So. I think they needed a, a little bit more, right? I think what Google needs to, to do is not to bribe every single one, just bribe enough of them so that there's not enough critical mass for them to kind of go together and do something alone. And one thing that might have spurred Google on is like looking at what happened to Netflix and what's happening with the TV streaming right now, whereas first everyone's on Netflix and then everyone decided Netflix is making so much money off of RIPs. And now you have Disney Plus, you have Hulu, you have all, everyone is, you know, HBO, everyone's doing their own network. So I'm probably... Google's looking at what's happening over there and decided we just need to put enough wrenches into the market to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I agree. It does I feel anti-competitive. You know, what makes me wince a bit there is that there's the big players get, what, 360 million? Is that what you said? And that's a nice, you know, if that's Google ad spend budget and you're up against, as, as a small independent developer or, frankly, not one of the 24 that, that was listed, right, you um, – you're now trying to compete with somebody that's got $360 million of ad spend that doesn't have to worry quite so much about the CPIs anymore. And it's tough enough as it is without that sort of advantage going to the, to the major uh, game makers. I, I will mention one thing out of this, you know, about the anti-competitiveness. I hadn't thought about, you know, it is anti-competitive in the terms that you're giving all the free money to to a couple of developers, probably not every, you know, game developer out there. So those people have the, the big advantage, of course, to their games. But I think in the end, to the actual gamers, I'm not sure this has a big impact because I'm guessing if there even was a competitive app store being opened up on Android, those probably they would probably take the, like they wouldn't make lower prices for the consumers, you know. They wouldn't make different or better games. They would just take a bigger chair to themselves into their pockets. So I think at the end of the day, for the gamers, this is not you know really anti-competitive. Uh, maybe we we don't know that. Um, I think you know one of the things that Epic was doing, at least with their Epic Game Store, is taking a lower mm -hmm. um, share of revenues, right? So. It's certainly theoretically possible that Nintendo or Activision Blizzard or whoever could set up their own store and take a smaller cut in an effort to attract more developers to their platform. We don't know. Um, I do agree with the take that it's like the rich get richer. You know, they get these sort of, um, they cut these deals with Google, they get the credits towards ad spend and like, I don't know that Activision Blizzard really needs that help. Um, <laughs> but no. they're in such a powerful position to where they get that deal offered to them in the first place. Uh, no, I'd say for, I mean, when it comes to Epic, you got one needs to remember that, yes, they are, you know, taking a lower cost in their store, but they're also making money off of Unreal, off of the platform itself. Mm -hmm. And if it was true that, you know, publishers wouldn't, you know, up the price when they could, then all the digital copies of games would cost just as much as, would cost less than the physical ones because the distribution costs went down. But that never happened, right? Or not really. Yeah, and we look at, uh, I believe it's Empires and Puzzles. They released a web shop recently where they're selling the hard currency at a lower price than compared to buying it on the platform. Because a 30% chunk, you still have space to give your player base a discount and take a lot home from giving that discount. So personally, I think we're going to see more and more of it. 
unless we see some changes in terms of the regulations in the in the stores. And I, I was looking at the data of Activision Blizzard, how much they took away in the past year in terms of their um, Android. And it was about 830 million. So if we look at 360 million across, across three years, Mm-hmm. Probably worth it. Not have the overhead, the technical overhead of developing the store, the marketing overhead of trying to get players to know it exists and going well, into well, it. And in all of those cases, it, it probably wasn't, I, I doubt they were actually building a store. So it's just free money, right? It's not like, oh, we were going to make a load of money from building a store and circumventing a 30% fee, hardware fee. Uh, but, oh, well, we'll take this one, which is, no, they weren't doing it anyway. They were just carrying on trucking, probably, right? And yeah. then, and then Google said, do you, "How about some free money for not for not doing anything, just continuing to do what you do?" Mm. That's a nice email to get. It can be used to build a war chest to later go ahead and do it once <laughs> oh, you don't want to sign a paper really? anymore. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, just business. <laughs> I I look in terms of whether it's anti-competitive or not. I think if it's called Project Hug, and no one is willing to admit that they took the money. I'm not saying it's illegal or anti-competitive, but definitely feel suspicious if you're not comfortable to publicly state that you did take this deal. Additionally, I looked into the anti-competitive rules in terms of the UK, and it says that you cannot agree with other businesses to share markets or customers. You'll be breaking competition law if you agree with another business to not compete with them for customers. But this is to start something that you don't have yet, you know, which I feel like is a different case because you could also say we're just not doing it because we don't want to take the risk, you know. Oh, it's, uh, legally, I think it's just a deal. It's just business. Ethically, it stinks a bit and uh, it, mm. rich get richer. So, And Google, I don't know, like to have a reputation, used to be don't be evil, right? And uh, it, I'm sure they wouldn't be happy about this policy being known to all those independent developers that they try and, you know, they do their events, don't they, where everyone gets together and let's help the little guy out. That's it certainly <laughs> flies in the face of that, doesn't it? Do you have any other takes, Matt, for for this topic? Well, I mean, similar to, to what David just said, um, you know, it's interesting that this happened to Google on the Android platform, which is kind of more open than Apple. Like, I don't think Apple would ever do this. They would just be like, you know, good luck, you know, making your own app store. You're not going to be allowed on our, our store and we have all the Apple devices. So I just kind of think it's an interesting outcome or I don't know, just like fact of life uh, that because Google is taking this open strategy with the Android platform, um, this could be a result. Um, whereas I don't think it would ever happen to Apple. Yeah, but um, well, unless legislation falls against them and Google, right? And that's that's really yeah. not impossible. I mean, that's exactly what the Epic, well, one of the things the Epic lawsuit is testing, right? It's, uh, how come we don't get to sell things directly if we, you know, to, why can't we build our own store? So and, and at the I moment, think- that's not that's not going Google. At, sorry, that's not going Epic's way right now, basically. But uh, it's not over yet, is it? Yeah, and I think whether it's Apple or Google. I think the sort of general, uh, let's say, legislative momentum is towards um, pushing back on these policies, pushing back on the 30% cut. And I think they know that, but they are willing to spend all sorts of money to delay it as much as possible, mm-hmm. whether it's Project Hug or, or other things, because uh, they make far more money from their current situation 
that it's like, you know, this is a drop in the bucket for Google. Uh, so they'd be happy to sort of uh, delay any sort of opening up of the ecosystem as long as possible. Mm. So, yeah, the takeaway of this episode is lots of rumors and hopefully we'll we'll see them confirmed. <laughs> A year from now, we we realize we were all wrong. Yeah. Wait a second, Wait a second though. Matt, Matt's story about Google and the handouts, is that rumor or is that fact? It sounded like no, it's that's, fact. That, that's fact, yeah. Project yeah. Hug is a real thing. This was yeah. previously revealed, and it was, I think, only recently came out uh, more details about who was involved and the numbers and whatnot. But I think even, even back to last year, we knew about Project Hug. I was like, oh, I thought no company that was part of the deal had acknowledged that they did take this deal. I don't know that anyone has acknowledged it. Any of the recipients have acknowledged right. it, but it's, I think it's generally public knowledge that Project Hug is a real thing. It was revealed in these court filings. Um, it's just that no one has sort of acknowledged taking the, the handout. Right. It so, seems there's a lot of secrecy around both these trials, some stuff we learn and then, but all the companies involved, because everyone has ties with both Google and Apple, right? Everyone wants, wants it to be kind of secret. They don't want any more of their, comp of their deals or anything to be out in the limelight. But on the second hand, it's hard to deny this publicly if, if someone catches the rumor of it all, because then maybe eventually the court will ask them for the actual details and, you know, are they going to lie publicly? Like that might, might come back to bite them later on. I don't think you get to do that. You can't, well, I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. To, to the public, you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, if you have an angle on this, let us know in the comments of the episode. You can find us on YouTube. Uh, also, if you want to help us reach a broader audience, if you could give us a like and also subscribe. And yeah, we appreciate you joining us and we hope to see you next week.